Hello and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. And that is not addressed just to you, listener, but that is directed as well to Robert Hassler, who is back from his hiatus. So back, baby, I'm back. You're back. You're back. Now, I want to say back in the studio. That's not entirely true. The, the studio is some Zoom cyberspace world uh, <laughs> that is respect my room and your study, respectively. But uh, yeah, welcome back. It's great to be with you guys again. Um, my name is Will Stockton. I'm a ministry associate in Washington, D.C. with Ministry of State and here, as almost always, with uh, my good friend, Robert Hassler, comms director, who uh, is finishing up his seminary semester, but I do understand that you took a little bit of a break from this seminary finals season to uh, watch some college football yesterday, and um, things did not go exactly how you were hoping. No, they did not, Uh, but yes, I did take a little bit of a break uh, to watch championship Saturday, um, mostly to watch the Big 12 championship, uh, Oklahoma State versus Baylor. Uh, Mary Hassler, my mother and proud listener of this show, is herself a proud alum of Oklahoma State University, and so felt obligated to take some time and, and watch her Cowboys play. And uh, it was it was an unfortunate ending. Uh, I could not could not believe it literally came down to about an inch um, from winning the Big Twelve championship. But that's what football is, right? Football it's a game of inches as uh, Al Pacino from uh, any given Saturday reminds us. Uh, we will claw so we saw that live our... on Saturday. Yeah. We will claw with our fingernails. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, look, that, that last play of the game was, was tragic because as he broke around the left side going for the end zone, I, at first it's like, oh, this is interesting. And then, uh, no, he's not going to make it and laid out and um, – Right, we'll we'll give uh give props and you know congratulations to Baylor, especially since we had Dr. David Corey on. So congratulations, Dr. Corey, and all the other Baylor fans out there. Uh, yeah, go ahead and your... crack those crack those sparkling apple juices and and the. That's what I wanted to say. It's like they're not even Reformed Baptists, I mean, <laughs> Baylor University. I mean, so like, how excited can we actually get here? <laughs> but I, I also both. Um, I was hoping for more of a mixed up playoff, and uh, so I, my my dream playoff looking at the end of the season was going to be um, Georgia. Michigan, Cincinnati, and Ohio State. I, uh, Oklahoma State. I thought that would be a great setup. Um, but my goodness, Alabama just rolled Georgia. They uh, Kirby Smart didn't stand a chance, and Nick Saban continues his reign as the chief among the gods uh, in terms of football and his offspring that try to attack him. Um, I know, right? The uh, uh, I felt a, a moment of of growing very close to my my brothers and sisters at uh, this new church. Curse and I have been members at now for a couple months. Uh, we were at uh, our Christmas party for the church Saturday night. Uh, and it was a dinner, really lovely dinner. And then there was a white elephant gifts exchange. So it went, you know, sort of for a while. And uh, of course it was during the Georgia Alabama game, but yes, yeah, so we had to go, we had to go to that. And I'm sitting there kind of wondering about the game, trying to stay focused. And I look around and all of the folks at my church have their, phones out and they're all looking at the scores um and so i knew oh, okay good a lot of college football fans here uh, and then we we after the game was was 
decided basically. I think when Alabama scored their last touchdown, it basically looked like it was over. I was talking to some of the guys and immediately all these guys were, uh, were all in on the idea that it was fixed. The, the, S, the SEC and the NCAA were working together to make sure they got two SEC teams into the playoff and it was all collusion. And I was like, these guys, these guys are all right. It's good. We need some good conspiracy. We need some exactly. good, good hatred of the powers of the NCAA here. And, right. uh, their conspiracy. But yeah. I mean, it was two great weekends of football in a row last weekend, uh, with Michigan and Ohio state was a really fun game. And then unfortunately A&M couldn't pull it out against LSU and Auburn, Alabama. It was just, yeah, it's been a good couple of weeks and now we got bowl season to look forward to, which is going to be really fun. But while it, you know, it is fun to talk about college football and, and sports in general, whether it's the world series or, uh, football playoff season. Um, that's not what we're here for. Uh, we're here this week to actually, Robert and I were talking, we wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of freedom, both in the state sense and in the sense of uh, the state and how the state uh, addresses the topics of freedom, and then as well as the church. And so the church in relation to freedom, America is an interesting place when we talk about the idea of liberty uh, and, and how we conceive of those. It is um, seems invariably that our faith um, is informed, not always for good, by our stately uh, governmental concepts of freedom and uh, perhaps vice versa. But one of the reasons that we want to talk about this was that um, this week commemorates the ratification of the 13th Amendment. And so it was on December 6th um, in 1865 that the 13th Amendment was ratified as part of the Constitution. And um, this is one of those parts of American history that was long overdue. It was a uh, fulfillment of promises that were laid out first in uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, um, words that were um, foreshadowed by even, you know, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Uh, You have the Mayflower Compact as well. So uh, this was long overdue, much needed. But um, so in some ways, it's, you know, it's like a, it's, um, it's beautiful and good that it's there. It needs to be there, but it's also sad that it had to had to happen the way that it did, but it, it's something to, I think, celebrate and be proud of it taking place. And the, the section one of the uh, 13th amendment reads this, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And so this is the finally the um, outlawing and forbidding of, of the, the abominable institution of slavery in the United States. Um, and while, again, it's good, um, one of the things we wanted to look at and discuss are these two sides of freedom, kind of a, we, we can think of freedom as working in two ways. There's a freedom from certain things. So there's freedom from oppression, freedom from slavery, and then there's freedom for. So what is freedom for? What is freedom going towards. Um, I think the 13th Amendment is clearly an instance of freedom from, is a freedom from slavery. But then now that that has been removed, what is what, what are people to look and use their freedom for? Um, and, and something interesting here is that if you only have freedom from, or if you only have freedom for, if you, if you play it out uh, logically to ad nauseum, um, it, it ends up in kind of a crazy place. If you just have freedom from, uh, you have freedom from church, freedom from family, freedom from work even, uh, or uh, if you only have freedom for, 
um, you can end up people in a tyrannical situation in which they are controlled for these certain ends. Uh, and again, whether you're the state or the church, both of them are um, necessary in, in Christianity. And we'll, we'll talk about that. I don't want to get all ahead of that. But Robert, as we move into this topic, as we look at these two sides of freedom um, and the unique American experiment of freedom, as it is so tied our founding and our documents and our thought to Christianity, how are you, uh, how would you think of this freedom from freedom for um, dualism? Yeah, that's a great question. I like the way that you you framed it. Um, I think that there's been a lot of debate throughout history, and it, it basically boils down to uh, exactly the way you framed it: is freedom the end in and of in and of itself, or is freedom amends to to an end, um, to a higher end, and what it means to be man and what it means to um uh be created and and have a purpose and uh i think so much of the discussion about freedom particularly in the modern context so something sort of since post 1960 has been uh what we might call a more libertarian version of freedom which is that uh, the end of man is to sort of be completely uh 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 obligationless uh, to have no demands on his or her individual person that that is freedom and then and that is the highest good um, whereas I think in, in a more classical understanding uh, even a more Christian understanding I would argue uh, freedom uh, in the Bible and in the West has never really been about um, uh, the absolute, you know, sort of libertarian notion of freedom. It's always been a freedom to a higher end. Um, and that, that higher end is, uh, you know, you, it's been called the good. Um, and in uh, reform circles, we might turn to something like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, and the Bible outlines, outlines different ways that we do that, how we, how we glorify God, how we enjoy him. Uh, and so being free uh, either from political you know, tyranny or the bondage of sin uh, is that is that so we can do those things. We can glorify God in the ways that we serve our family and our church and our community, um, the ways that we obey him uh, and obey God and in, in his laws and, and duties. And I think um, that's really where, you know, the whole debate about freedom comes down. And if you look at, if you look at today, um, even Christians will sometimes kind of, I think, get duped a little bit um, by the sort of the, the ways of the world and, and argue that uh, freedom uh, is this idea that you are you are free from these different obligations and duties and that's just not just not the case uh, historically or scripturally yeah I remember um, reading Mark Knoll's book the uh, history of the Christianity of the United States and Canada one of the things that he points out is that after the Revolutionary War um, liberty became such a dominant driving force in American consciousness uh, and the way we thought of ourselves. And that became such a dynamic element to faith as well. The idea of freedom, Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1, where the spirit of the Lord is, there there is freedom, there there is liberty. Um, and so uh, this idea of liberty is very deeply ingrained within us. Um, and I think something that, that's interesting when we when we talk about this, and um, a lot of times I think you'll get 
uh, Christians who will say that the basically government's job is only freedom from. Um, it, it's solely freedom from. It is freedom from oppression, uh, not necessarily freedom for. But that isn't necessarily how things work. I mean, I think about our conversation last week with uh, John and Caitlin Shelton and John's work on the child tax credit. Well, that is a freedom for, as in that is government promoting a certain good that it believes should be existent and sustained within our country. Um, I think about our conversation with Jennifer Marshall Patterson as well, and what she was saying about um, the Build Back Better plan as and how are we to think about that in terms of actual freedom and flourishing for families? So that is a freedom for. So government will inevitably be involved in, in both. What we need to do is to be aware of, of how that is the case and then of, in what ways um, both of those are being implemented and furthered. Yeah, I mean, I turn to something like First Peter 2, uh, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so um, that punishing evil, right, that is that is suppressing tyranny, that is um, freeing people from, uh, you know, oppression and, and, and evil, which is good. Uh, but uh, at least in Peter's mind, the government has a different, has a second obligation, which is to promote the good. And so uh, there is this direction, right. Of directing people towards the good. Uh, and so you are freed, not just from things, but freed actually to do certain things that you have certain duties and obligations um, as a, as a parent, as a child um, of, you know, with aging parents, you have a, you have duties and obligations to your neighborhood. You have duties and obligations to your town, to your state, to your nation, uh, even, um, and, uh, uh, certainly as Christians, we have duties and obligations to our, to our church and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, um, yeah, the, the American founding is interesting in that so many, uh, people who were involved in this discussion were themselves Christians, uh, steeped in, uh, the Bible and, and understood these things. And in some ways kind of took them for granted, just sort of an assumption that, that people would know, well, of course, you are freed to do something that you have a higher calling than just being um, uh, sort of an isolated uh, 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 individual uh, in a society. And uh, my it, John Witherspoon is on my mind because I just read my wife's 15-page paper that she just wrote about him. And what is really interesting is that, that John Witherspoon is 100% committed to the uh, notion of human equality and freedom uh, because he, he understands a couple of things. The first of it being that man is totally depraved, that we are all equally fallen and, and sinful and uh, uh, alienated from God. And so we're equal in that status. And so that was, that was one notion uh, that he, that he leaned on, uh, but also that, uh, that religion in the country ought to be uh, promoted and, and supported uh, by what he would uh, uh, contribute to in the, um, Westminster Confession of Faith, this idea of a nursing father, right? And uh, uh, the government is a nursing father uh, to the church uh, because you need civic religion, you need public religion uh, uh, in order to um, promote the good. And uh, that would free people up to do the things that they're supposed to do.
uh, and to limit oppression and tyranny in society. And so I think those are really important factors um, that sometimes get overlooked as we talk about these things, especially if you're worried about, you know, claims of Christian nationalism or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to a book I may have referenced here before, but it's um, the making of uh, the American self. And it's a kind of a social history in a way of uh, American viewing of themselves and what it means to be a self-made person or to make oneself from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. And one of the things the author points out that I think is really interesting is that uh, if you were to look at the definition of what it means to be like a self-made person or to be like, to, to make something of oneself, it didn't have anything to do with money uh, until the 20th century really is when that actually started. Uh, up Before that to be a self-made man or woman was to have <laughs> to have instilled virtues, to have instilled mm. character, to have instilled integrity, to be well-read, um, to be versed in certain topics. That was the idea of making something of oneself. And, um, we've definitely changed that over time to how we, when I think of someone being self-made, I normally think of it in financial terms, not in terms of, uh, like I said, the intangibles, moral character qualities. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's another element of the freedom for there is what are we looking, um, in terms of our freedom for, and it, the idea as we were more closely tied to a more Christian ethic and a more Christian understanding of, of life, um, uh, that idea of, of, of developing and inculcating character was more, was more readily present. Um, and I'll say something else interesting. Uh, one of the reasons that the first great awakening happened uh, in um, the colonies was that people, uh, the children who were like third generation removed from the first, first uh, people who came or first, like first generation of immigrants who came to America um, were a little more lax in their faith, weren't attending church as much, weren't, weren't, weren't as involved. And second, things like commerce uh, and the making of capital was much more of interest to people than their faith. And there's definitely a connection there as we look to the 20, uh, 20 21st century of what is dominant, what do, what do people most look forward to and for uh, in terms of being self-made um, and the consequence well, that has for religion. Well, I mean, this has just played out so evidently in our higher education system. Right. And it's even starting to trickling, trickling down now into high school and, and things like that. I mean, uh, higher education for uh, much of history was, was character development, right. Was to create good citizens. Um, and that involved a, a, a wide range of education and things, you know, sort of a, as disparate as, as geo geometry and arithmetic to rhetoric, to history and English and theology. Um, and now uh, our higher education system is effectively a licensing program that so you can go out and get a higher paying job. I mean, that, that, the idea is that you learn a vocation that will make you money um, in college. And so as, as that priority has taken, has taken root, right, classes in theology and history and English have sort of gone by the wayside. You're no longer required to take many of those, especially if you're in degrees like business or or uh, pre-med or, or things like that. Um, instead, your, your course load gets heavily loaded up in sort of niche topics within your very specific degree program. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's what we're talking about, right? Is that this idea that um, freedom or, or being self-made is tied to something other than uh, virtue to the, the, the eternal higher end of man 
being glorifying God. What you have? Would you, well, would you think that the idea of, of so the freedom from, let's say, tyranny and oppression, let's say that that's the the freedom from, the freedom for side is the common good. So the freedom to pursue, in in terms of the state, the common good, is that is that like always and invariably going to be the case? Like the state is going to be the promoter of pursuing some. Some something of its conception of the common good, and that's going to be the laws that it creates. Now, it may not actually be a biblical or a Christian understanding of the common good, but the freedom for will is aimed at that thing. Yeah, I think it is, but I think the question then becomes: How is it defining the common good, and how how wide right. or how narrow is it? Right. Um, because you know the government the state could, could step in and say, well, we want to promote um, the common good of taking care of families. And so we are going to institute uh, universal pre-K because we think that'll best help families. And then the question then becomes, well, is that the role of the government? Is that the role of the state? And as, as somebody like we've had like Jennifer Marshall Patterson come on and talk about um, that there's this idea of, of spheres of sphere sovereignty and, and, or you might, uh, 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 call it subsidiarity. Uh, so that's, I think that's more of a Catholic notion, but the idea that, uh, you know, decisions are best made about the common good at the, at the most sort of local level. Um, and so the government in, in the sort of American context has, has tended to be the nursing father, right? It's the thing that sort of protects uh, uh, free men and women to do the things that they're supposed to do uh, by suppressing evil within and keeping sort of the, the invaders out uh, from outside. And I think um, uh, as the course of American history has gone on, has been trying to redefine what what is the role of the state and, and where it can and can't promote the quote unquote common good in such in such narrow terms. Um, and I think that's that's really what we're seeing now. And, and as you talk about being at the local level, I remember with uh, Caitlin Shelton was saying that politics is is a means of promoting the common good of pursuing the common good but it's not the only means and uh, but i do think we need to be aware of as we look at laws that are being passed by it doesn't matter which party is in power is they are these laws we're talking about we'll talk about national level national federal government are are these laws that are being passed actual promoting with the biblical conception of the common good not is it what most people want? Not is it um, popular, which is what most people want. I guess the, the same thing. Um, but is this actually resonant, consonant with a biblical idea of the common good? And maybe that should be how we think about how to use our freedom. And then again, outside of the legislative way, we talk about our Christian lives, loving our neighbors as ourselves, um, sacrificing um, service those things are to be uh, how we use our freedom for, which um, we can, we can, as we start landing this plane, move towards the Christian side of that. The Christian life is meant to include both. It is, it is meant to include a freedom from freedom from what freedom from the sin freedom from death. Uh, There's some sermon I'm trying to remember who uh, said it, but um the pastor said that not only were two thieves crucified with Jesus, but two other thieves were killed along with Christ at the cross. And that was sin and death hmm. were both killed uh, at Golgotha. 
And so we have, we are freed by being justified, the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. We are free from sin and death, from the wiles of the devil. But then there's also freedom for, which is another side of things, um, which maybe is most magnificently and clearly laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, um, which we'll be doing a ministry state. We'll be doing a Bible study on the ministry, uh, the Sermon on the Mount next year. Um, I think of Revel- uh, Romans 12 is another great example of of freedom for but robert i'll toss this yeah. back over to you yeah I, well i think you're you're getting at uh something really important that i think sometimes gets lost in the church i mean um listen to christian radio for like an hour and there are a lot of songs that talk about freedom like a lot and uh i think that's great that this you know the chains i think that there was a song about being chains being broken that was really popular um, for a while on Christian radio. And one thing that I always think is, is just slightly, um, annoying because it's, they miss the second part. And I mean, they miss the second part of Romans six, right? And so what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means. Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, that's like, that's kind of where it ends. You've been set free from sin. It's like, that's awesome. Yay. But then we forget the second half of that clause, right? You have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. It's like, oh, I'm a slave to righteousness now. It's that part I think often gets, gets missed. Um, and, uh, one thing that, um, we ought to remember, uh, in the church, uh, is that we were, we were bought with a price, bought at a price. And, um, while we have been set free, um, from sin and from the law, or I should say, and because we have been set, set free from sin and no longer under the law, we are still obligated to obey the Lord. And we do so with a cheerful heart because that's what we've been made. We've become slaves of obedience. Um, and so we, we faithfully serve uh, our Lord, our risen Lord, uh, Jesus, and uh, doing all the things that we're supposed to do, which you know, you've talked about sort of outlined in, in the Sermon on the Mount, not in order to achieve a, a salvation, not in order to, to get it as a reward, um, but to do so because that's what we were made to do. That's what we, we were made uh, for. And uh, I think that's a really important uh, distinction. And I think probably the reason, because we, we're not as sort of adamant about that anymore, probably the reason why we had such a tr- tough time uh, during the initial parts of, of COVID and, and how to respond to regulations and rules. And that's a whole different conversation. And there's a lot of nuance to have there. And that conversation needs to happen. Um, but the, the point being that there was so much confusion because we didn't really understood, understood what, what it meant to be free um, uh, in a biblical sense and in the context of, a, of a, also being citizens of a nation. And I think that that's really an interesting, uh, uh, thing that happened that I don't know if we've quite resolved yet. Yeah. You know, um, I'll stick with the Christian life here and avoid the, 
highly contentious question of shutdowns <laughs> and masks uh, that you have almost third railed yourself. I know that. that was a bad idea. Wow. No, I, I, I'll go to um, the idea of the Christian life and freedom for, and like for the state, the freedom for is the common good. Um, in the Christian life, our freedom for is, is freedom for obedience. And this word obedience is one of the uh, youngest, probably earliest words we can remember from our parents. I mean, obedience sounds like such a childish word, right? I mean, that's how I think of it. Like be obedient to your parents, be obedient. But the truth is obedience is never something that we outgrow, is never something that we believe, leave behind in our Christian life. And by being obedient, not only are we're not just like staying out of trouble, but obedience pushes back the darkness. Uh, what does Isaiah 9 say? Those people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Um, the, that great light is Jesus, who was obedient to the will of his father. Uh, God's will comes to bear on this world through what? Obedience. Uh, it is such a simple thing. It seems like such a mundane way, but it is how God chooses to, to again, to make, allow salt and light to occur in this world. Uh, it is, um, it also, I think is evidence to this wonderful truth that it's God who will do the work. There's that essay by Edmund, there's an essay by Edmund Clowney on the politics of the kingdom, where he talks about that, um, that man can in no way usher in the kingdom. It is God who brings it about. It is the the, as the theologians like to say, the monergistic work of God. It is him alone who brings these things about. And our obedience is, is about getting in line with that. Um, say one more thing before kicking it back over to you. But I, I remember um, one of my favorite lines from Eugene Peterson is um, he viewed, when he was preaching, he viewed his job in the pulpit to basically get out of the way and let the spirit work. Uh, and another thing that he would say was he wanted, when he met with people and he was talking with, with parishioners, he would ask himself, where is the Holy Spirit moving? Where is what he would call God's jet stream going? And then his job was to just step within that jet stream, to be obedient enough to step in that jet stream and then let God move him along. Um, and that's the world we live in. God is, is at work. Aslan is on the move and it's our job to, to, to see where that is and then get a, get behind the work that God is already doing. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And then I think the, the, the next question, and, and um, I think it's the, the, the natural next question is, um, well, how do I be obedient in all of these different circumstances, all these different things in my life that aren't explicitly laid out in scripture. Right. And I think that that's, Paul is anticipating that question as he's writing this, this treatise on freedom in Romans. Right. And um, kind of going back to my, you know, to, to grab the third rail one more time, you know, we had all of these debates about masking and, and, you know, should churches be open or should we be online, blah, blah. And, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of in my head was thinking about Romans 14 because this is the, the trouble with freedom, right? Is that it causes conflicting interests. People are going to disagree about what to do, uh, especially on issues that are not explicitly laid out in scripture. There is no Bible verse in the Bible. You can look for it all you want. I guarantee you will not find it that says when there is a, uh, a virus and the government shuts down churches, you should do this. 
There is, that's not there. Um, what we do have is, is a set of ethic, ethical principles from scripture, and we have to determine, you know, what is the best way to do, way to do things. And in some things, we are going to come to disagreements. And I, I, I hear Paul talking about that in Romans 14. He's talking about the people who abstain from eating uh, uh, certain foods and people who go ahead and eat it. There are certain people who observe uh, uh, certain days and there's people who don't. The, the last one I think is particularly relevant right now is we are entering quote unquote Advent season uh, and within our own circles of Presbyterians. Uh, oh, what, we, are, what are you doing? What are you doing putting quotes around Advent? Season? Oh, I'm just saying in, in Presbyterian circles, we always, we have this fight every single year, which is like, can we, or can we not celebrate Advent? Can we call it Advent? Can we not? And uh, it's a perfect example of exactly what, what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. Okay. Some people observe the days, some people don't. Um, and what is, what does Paul basically say? He's basically like, uh, if you're the weaker brother, like don't, don't lord it over your, your uh, stronger brother, as in like, don't make your stronger brother come down to you. And then what does he say to the stronger brother? Stronger brother is basically like, don't get in the way of the, of the weaker brother. If the weaker brother needs to do that, then that's what he's going to do. And it's like this sort of like perfect non-answer where it's like, Paul, what do you want us to do? And Paul's basically like, obey, be a, be a Christian. Um, and I think that that is a sort of a, a great um, uh, distillation of, of freedom and obedience in the New Testament church, because it's this, it's this perfect example, this perfect case of things on this side of glory are going to be messy. You're going to have disagreements. You're not always going to agree about all these sort of secondary tertiary things. Um, and, you know, serve Christ, humble yourselves, uh, love sacrificially, and, uh, you know, figure out how to do it. And I think that that's kind of a, a perfect uh, answer. I think Paul could have said, you people who are abstaining, stop abstaining. Like, don't do that. That's bad. But he didn't. Um, and I think that that's a really important, and he had, he could have, he had all the authority to do it. Right. And I think that that's a really important thing. And I, I, that's a really a beauty of, um, Presbyterian polity, I think, and the Westminster confession and this idea of the freedom of conscience, um, to use that word freedom again. Um, I was listening to a podcast from our friends at RTS, uh, Washington, uh, and they had a pastor on talking about church polity and, you know, the, the Presbyterian membership vows are pretty basic and they're pretty basic for a reason. Um, and that's because uh, as Presbyterians, we do believe in the sovereignty of God. We do believe in the effective power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, who are we as men, fallen men, to get in the way of some of those things? Uh, and I think that that's, that's a really important aspect also of freedom and kind of what you're talking about is sort of getting in the jet stream. I mean, like what, what, what does scripture give us the authority to outlaw and to ban and to promote you know, from a certain institutional perspective and where is it silent? And then where it's silent, we need to be very trusting that regenerate spiritual regeneration is real. Sanctification is real. The Lord is actually doing those things and he will, he will bring them to fruition. Um, and our job is to, is to sit back and obey. And I think that that's a really as important aspect of freedom, particularly within the church. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, that's a good place to end for us here. Uh, for us as Christians to remember in this season, uh, this Advent season, I'm not going to put quotes around it. I'm not doing it. I'm not. Although, look, I did grow up 
in the Bible church world, which means I had no idea what Advent was. I mean, that was for, I mean, maybe only Eastern Orthodox people. I mean, the real OG. How many, how many Eastern Orthodox did you know in North Texas growing in, up? In Alito, in Alito, <laughs> Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just say, I don't think they settled there. <laughs> this, uh, but again, that we, in this, in this time of year, celebrate the birth of true birth of freedom. Uh, and, and again, a freedom from sin and death and a freedom for obedience and sacrifice and loving our neighbor, um, loving one another people in our church. Uh, so we'll, th- uh, with, with that in mind though, um, we're, we're, uh, going to have a few more episodes before the year ends. We're going to keep things running and, we look forward to being back with you next week. You can follow Robert on Twitter at RD Hasser. You can follow me at Stockdale Will. Uh, please like and subscribe below. Pass along to your friends and family as maybe, you know, maybe even like an early Christmas gift for them. Uh, what better gift than to give someone the Will and Rob show this wonderful holiday season? But it's great to be with you guys, and we look forward to being back with you next week.